we return to our study in the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we find ourselves in the middle of a section of Paul's letter, specifically the final four chapters, chapters 10 to 13, where Paul is directly engaging both the false apostles who were opposing him and undermining his reputation at Corinth and a subsection of the Corinthian church who, unlike the majority of the church, had remained duped by the false apostles' lies and so remained suspicious of Paul's integrity and genuine apostleship. Now, these false apostles had come into Corinth and they had thrown every accusation they could think of out at the Apostle Paul to undermine his reputation and the Corinthians' confidence in him. Paul wasn't a skilled public speaker. He, he didn't draw a sufficient-sized crowd or command uh, a significant enough speaking fees. He wasn't one of the original 12 apostles from Jerusalem, and he had no letters of commendation from the Jerusalem church. You know, he changed his mind so often with respect to his travel plans that it was obvious he was a fleshly man and driven by his own impulses, devoid of the Spirit of God. Everything they could think of, they threw out at him. And chief among all of those accusations was that this man suffered way too much to be a genuine servant of Christ. And we've said it a number of times, these false teachers, in addition to being Judaizing legalists, were also triumphalists. They had this conception that the Christian life and the Christian ministry were to be marked by uninterrupted outward successes. Since Jesus was enthroned as king over creation, well, Jesus' servants should be ruling right alongside him in manifest victory. These were prosperity preachers. These were health and wealth peddlers. And if you weren't an eloquent orator or who could command large crowds and even larger speaking fees, if you didn't operate with ostentatious displays of how favored you were, and if you experienced the kind of conflict and opposition and suffering that Paul faced, well, you couldn't possibly be blessed of God. And you know, the Corinthians liked how that sounded. Is there a way that we can have our sins forgiven while at the same time being well-received and, and celebrated by the world? Can, can we serve Jesus and at the same time avoid all the weaknesses and difficulties that marked Jesus' ministry and now marks Paul's ministry? Crown without the cross? Hey, I'll sign up for that. And so they became enamored with the false apostles' triumphalist version of Christianity. And they were especially infatuated with all the boastful claims these phonies had made for themselves. And so Paul has set about the task to win them back. In the first seven chapters of the book, he, he laid out his case for the majority of the church who had repented from this gospel-denying triumphalism during Titus's most recent visit. But there was still an obstinate minority who remained deceived by the flashiness and fleshliness of the false apostles, and they were reluctant to put their confidence in Paul and thus in the gospel that Paul preached. And so chapters 10 to 13 represent Paul's appeal to that recalcitrant minority to have done with the false apostles once and for all. And so he takes the gloves off, as it were, and he unmasks these charlatans for the frauds that they were. 
They're nothing but servants of Satan, he says, masquerading as apostles of Christ, adulterously wooing the Corinthians away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And a significant part of Paul's strategy for winning back this unrepentant minority has been to wear a mask of his own. The false teachers were masquerading as apostles. But in chapter 11, verse 16, through to chapter 12, verse 10, Paul decides he's going to don the mask of a boastful fool. He says, if the Corinthians are smitten by the foolish boasting of arrogant triumphalists, well, he'll do a little boasting of his own. And so even though he's disgusted to engage in any kind of boasting, he decides to answer the fool according to his folly in the hope that he can shake his dear spiritual children free from the stupor that they had fallen into. But then he goes and boasts not like they do. He doesn't boast like they do. He turns the false apostle's foolish boasting on its head by boasting not in his strengths, not in his successes, but about his sufferings and weaknesses. That is what actually marks genuine, faithful servants of Christ, not uninterrupted successes and the fawning adulation of the world, but as he says, chapter 12, verse 10, weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties. Genuine Christian service is not certified by the absence of conflict. It's certified by enduring such conflict without turning aside from faithfulness to the gospel of Christ that He sent us to preach. God is pleased to bring His servants through harrowing difficulties, from beatings to stonings to shipwrecks to thorns in the flesh delivered by Satan himself, so that God can magnify the glory of His own strength and power against the backdrop of human weakness. Spiritual power is not displayed in ostentatious shows of outward triumph. Spiritual power, verse 9, is perfected in weakness. It's when we are weak that then we are strong, verse 10. And that's the note upon which Paul concludes the, fool, the fool's speech. A ministry founded upon boasting is utterly foolish, entirely incongruent with the pattern of Jesus' own ministry, which culminated in the greatest suffering of the cross, and entirely inconsistent with how God means to glorify the power of Christ in this age. And so that brings us to our passage this morning where Paul picks up after the fool's speech by appealing to the Corinthians to properly discern his genuine apostleship. So let's read our text together, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 11 to 18. Paul says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for this third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. 
If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I've sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take any advantage of you, did he? And did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? As you read that paragraph, you can discern some of the other accusations that were being made by the false apostles and that were being entertained by the Corinthians. There was this notion that Paul was inferior to these triumphalist super apostles, particularly with respect to the working of miracles and the like. And then there was also this notion that Paul did not love the Corinthians, particularly because of his refusal to receive financial support for them while he was with them. And so in this passage, Paul responds to those accusations and in the process provides two authenticating marks of his apostleship, two broad characteristics that certify his genuineness as a servant of Christ and by implication, which certify the genuineness of all who would endeavor to serve Christ and his church, which applies to all of us. And the first of those authenticating marks of Paul's apostleship is, number one, that he had exhibited the genuine signs of a true servant of Christ, the genuine signs. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. He says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul begins here with a, a disgusted epilogue to the fool speech. I have become foolish. You yourselves have compelled me. You have driven me to engage in what I know to be utterly foolish and what I find to be extremely distasteful. And the New American Standard has the next sentence beginning with the word actually, which is actually quite a, a free paraphrase. The original just literally reads, you yourselves have compelled me for I should have been commended by you. I was compelled to engage in the foolish boasting like I have because you who should have commended me as your apostle, as your father in the gospel, you who are yourselves my letter of commendation, chapter 3, verse 2, you who are yourselves the very seal of my apostleship in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2, instead of defending the integrity of my life and my ministry against these false accusations, you considered me inferior to these boastful triumphalists. And so I had no choice but to wear the mask of a fool so I could show you how foolish those imposters really are and how foolish you've been for being taken in by them. See, the Corinthians knew Paul. He lived among them for 18 months, Acts 18 tells us. They observed his character. They tested his message. Their own conversion to Christ was the evidence that Paul preached the one and only saving gospel. And not only that, but as we'll see in a moment, they, they'd observed God's own testimony and attestation to the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship as they saw him perform these miraculous signs that had marked a true apostle. 
Paul was, as he says in verse 11, in no respect inferior to these super apostles. And so the Corinthians therefore had no reason to sit sheepishly in silence while these invaders leveled slanderous accusations against his character. And I have just a brief word of application for that. Charles Hodge puts it well. He says, it is an imperative duty resting on all who have the opportunity to vindicate the righteous. For us to sit silent when aspersions are cast upon good men or when their character and services are undervalued is to make ourselves partakers of the guilt of detraction. I mean, that's a really helpful word. It, it doesn't mean that we need to have to, we need to go start a Twitter fight uh, with every kook on the internet who has something bad to say about your spiritual heroes. But it does mean that if people ever invaded this church, like the false apostles invaded the Corinthian church, which wouldn't have to be with, you know, marching with banners and, you know, taking over the pulpit. It would, you could be, you know, coming to grace life, sitting and listening, going to Bible studies, starting to sow some discord, coming into the, to big church, talking about this or that, you know, complaining about what they've been hearing or, or whatever it is. If there were folks who had ever invaded that way and started bad-mouthing your pastors or elders, you have a duty to silence those people by vindicating the character and the ministry of the men whom you know to have labored over you with integrity. I mean, look at all the mischief that plagued the Corinthian church because there was no courageous voice to nip that triumphalistic nonsense in the bud. At the first moment the false apostles tried to undermine Paul's character, the first moment that they brought that kind of accusation, there should have been men who rose up and say, no, I know this man, this is not true. And, when they, and because they didn't, look at the snowball avalanche that was created as a result. And so Paul says, in no respect was I inferior to these super apostles, verse 11, even though I am a nobody. And he has to add that qualification. Even the true statement that he was in no way inferior to the false apostles brushes too close to boasting for him. And he's embarrassed by it, and he's got to quickly speak of his own unworthiness. And there's great wordplay going on in the original. It doesn't quite come through in the English translation. The, the Greek word for the phrase, in no respect, is exactly the same word that gets translated nobody at the end of the verse. So you could translate it, in nothing was I inferior, even though I am nothing. And this wasn't controversial for Paul. He knew he was nothing. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants, Paul, nor the one who waters, Apollos, is anything but God who causes the growth. I'm nothing. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, I am just an earthen vessel an unremarkable, easily replaceable clay pot that carries the treasure of the gospel. But understand, this wasn't just uh, the false humility of self-deprecation. Paul says he is at the same time nothing and in nothing inferior to the super apostles. And he expressed that same principle in chapter 3, verse 5, where he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate. So in himself, Paul was nothing. The least of all the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, he was what he was, and therefore he was not the least bit outdone 
by the intruding false teachers. Because, verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now see, the Corinthians were enamored with the super apostles' flashy displays of power and their fanciful tales of supernatural mystical experience, while all Paul had to show them were scars from whips and bruises from rods. But Paul responds here that the signs of a true apostle were indeed performed among them. And notice the passive voice. He doesn't say, I performed the signs of, apostle, of a true apostle among you. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. And he's emphasizing every way that he can that he is nothing and that the grace of God working in him and with him is everything. He says that in, in Romans 15, 18, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. What a contrast to some of the triumphalist false teachers we have in our own day. So what are the signs of a true apostle that the Corinthians had observed in Paul's ministry among them? Well, he speaks of signs and wonders and miracles. And the distinction between these three isn't to, to be pressed too, too far. Commentators agree that Paul isn't referring to three different types of miracles, but to miraculous signs in general, though considered from different perspectives. They're signs because they serve as authentication for apostolic authority. Uh, they're wonders because they arouse awe and astonishment in, in those who witness them. And their miracles are literally powers, that is, works of power, because they display God's power in a more remarkable, extraordinary way than is normal. So the point is, you Corinthians have a short memory. Paul had worked miracles among them. He said to them in 1 Corinthians 2.4, when he first came to them with the gospel, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that wasn't unique to his ministry in Corinth. Because he was a genuine apostle sent from the Lord Jesus Christ, he was endowed with the supernatural ability to perform miracles. In Acts 14, 8 to 10, in Lystra, Paul commanded a man who had been lame from birth, he said, stand upright on your feet. And the text says, he leaped up and began to walk. Acts 16, 18 records for us the time that Paul cast a demon out of a slave girl in Philippi. Acts 19, 11 and 12 speaks of Paul's ministry in Asia Minor, and it says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. And in Acts 14, 3, we get something of a summary statement of Paul's miracle working ministry. When Luke says of Paul and his companions, the Lord was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. And it's that reality of attestation that the Lord Jesus himself was testifying to the authenticity of the word of his grace that Paul was preaching by granting them the ability to perform these miracles, that's really the significant point here. You've got to remember that in the time where Paul's ministering, the New Testament is still being written. 
God's revelation had not yet been complete. And so in a time when anyone could just show up and make spectacular claims for themselves and for their teaching, criteria for authentication were of paramount importance. Now, in our day, we evaluate men and ministries by the full counsel of divine revelation delivered to us in the Scriptures. But before that revelation had been completed, God authenticated the ministries of His servants through revelatory miracles like these. And the writer of Hebrews says this very thing, Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, after the gospel was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Okay, now how was that? How was that confirmed, writer of Hebrews? Verse 4, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So the miracles of the apostles were God's own testimony to the genuineness of their message when the fullness of their message really had not been revealed in the completion of the New Testament yet. And Paul tells the Corinthians, you witnessed these very signs of an apostle when I was with you. God Himself testified to you of the authenticity of my apostleship. But we need to note that the working of these kinds of miracles was not an infallible test of apostleship. After all, miracles could be counterfeited. In 2 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul describes the Antichrist as as the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Jesus himself predicts in Mark 13, 22, that false Christs and false apostles will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if it were possible, even the elect. In fact, it's almost certain that the the false apostles were able to produce these kinds of false miracles as well. If they boasted in their outward displays of power and they had none to speak of, Paul's argument would have been pretty easy. I've got miracles, they've got none. So they did display signs. How were the Corinthians to distinguish between Paul's genuine signs and the intruder's false signs? Look at verse 12 again. Paul doesn't speak only of the signs and wonders and miracles. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. With all perseverance. You could translate that final phrase as well in utmost endurance. And it's here that Paul strikes at the heart of the contrast between him and the false apostles. Their signs, quote-unquote, were nothing more than counterfeit triumphalist showmanship. But Paul's miracles were performed in the context of great endurance in the face of opposition and conflict. Their ministry occasioned no conflict from the corrupt culture around them because they were part of the corrupt culture around them. All false religion is at home in the world. Why? Because the world loves its own. Jesus said that very thing in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. He said to his unbelieving brothers in John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you. Why? Because you're of the world and the world loves its own. False prophets never have to perform miracles while enduring opposition from the world because they don't preach the truth. And because they they don't preach the truth, the world doesn't oppose them. The world welcomes them with open arms. Satan doesn't attack his own servants 
A kingdom divided against itself can't stand, Jesus told us in Matthew 12. So for Paul, the genuine signs of a true apostle were not genuine unless they were performed with all perseverance in utmost endurance of the afflictions that belong to all genuine servants of Christ as they minister in the midst of a world which lies in the power of the evil one. Imposters may have been able to impersonate those works which seem to indicate spiritual power. But what did Christ say to Paul in verse 9? My power is perfected in weakness. Perseverance in weakness was a surer sign of genuine apostleship than even the signs, wonders, and miracles that Paul himself performed. And so this teaches us, friends, that as we are seeking to be discerning in our age as to who is a a genuine servant of Christ and who's an imposter, we must remember that the genuine sign of faithful ministers is not outward displays of manifest favor and strength and victory, but rather the patient enduring of difficulty, of suffering for Christ's sake, all the while remaining a faithful witness to the gospel and not changing the Scriptures and twisting the Scriptures around to suit my own comforts and tastes, to escape suffering. We live in an age when God no longer authenticates His servants by endowing them with powers to work miracles. Since the fullness of God's revelation has been given in the complete canon of Scripture, the Scripture itself is its own self-authentication. It's not as if God has to say, yeah, this person is really teaching the truth, Let me show you by a miracle. Now, he says, this person is really teaching the truth. Let me show you by this amazing miracle of full revelation, the complete revelation of God's mind to us in the sufficient Scriptures. So now, it, the Bible, is the standard by which we measure the faithfulness of those who come in the name of Christ. But what the Bible teaches us is that the genuine servants are not necessarily the ones who are marked by worldly success but the ones who persevere through weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties, and then don't tamper with the message to try to get out of it. And not only does this help us evaluate the genuineness of other ministries, it also helps us measure our own faithfulness as well. We who would profess to serve Christ in this day can be encouraged that weaknesses and difficulties don't disqualify us or even cast doubt upon the usefulness of our ministries. We need not despair if the Lord hasn't seen fit to bless our labors with admiration and applause of those around us. External success is not the criterion of authenticity. The criterion of authenticity is whether we carry out our ministry in faithfulness to the Scriptures while patiently enduring the afflictions that are sure to mark the ones who must be weak in order to to display Christ's divine power. And so understand, Grace Life, that the, the faithful servant isn't the one who can draw the largest crowds or build the biggest churches or have the coolest conferences or write the most books or cull the most accolades. The faithful servant is the one who can count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing and serving Jesus the one who can lose everything that this world has to offer and call it gain because they gain Christ and count him to be more satisfying than all the applause 
and all the comfort in the world. So, the first authenticating mark of Paul's apostleship is that he had exhibited the genuine signs of a true servant of Christ, which, yes, in his day meant the working of supernatural miracles, but which more importantly meant the faithful endurance of suffering on behalf of Christ. But there's a second authenticating mark of Paul's apostleship that we see in this text, and that is, number two, sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. And we see Paul emphasize this in verses 13 to 18. He says, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for this third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I didn't burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I've not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I've sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go. I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take any advantage of you, did he? And did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? What is going on with all of that? Well, what lies behind these verses is the accusation that Paul didn't love the Corinthians, that he didn't have their best interests at heart. He's, he's concerned to explain, listen, you were not treated as inferior, verse 13. I didn't deceive you, verse 16. I didn't take advantage of you, verses 17 and 18. Instead, he says he's loved them like a father loves his own children, which has been demonstrated in the sacrifices he's been willing to make on their behalf. But where did this accusation come from? What was the basis for it? Well, it was that he refused to receive financial support from the Corinthians for his ministry among them. You say, wait a second. Paul's refusal to take the Corinthians' money was proof that he didn't love them? Yes, that was indeed the charge. And it's not the first time Paul's addressed it. Back in chapter 11, turn back there to chapter 11, verses 7 to 11. Paul writes, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I wasn't a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So he says, when I was with you, I didn't take any of your money. He said, I humbled myself by working with my own hands and I received monetary support from churches who were much worse off financially than you were so that I could prove no imposition upon you. And not only have I refused to take money from you, I'll continue to refuse to take money from you. And then in, in verse 11, in uh, chapter 11, he gives voice to the accusation. Why? Why am I going to do this? Because I don't love you? See, that's what they were saying. Well, the key to understanding this is the, is the customs surrounding the Greco-Roman orator. So in that time... Visiting rhetoricians were like artists employed by a patron, or a, in this case, a group of patrons. 
And such a relationship wasn't just professional, but especially in the case of traveling teachers of wisdom, the exchange of money for the teacher's services would have forged a bond of friendship. Those who supported the teacher would feel a sense of fellowship and partnership in his teaching. And the fact that Paul received support from the poverty-stricken Macedonians, which we learn about in chapter 8, but refused to take money from the comparatively well-off Corinthians, meant that Paul didn't love the Corinthians the way he loved the Macedonians. He didn't feel that same fellowship and partnership in the gospel with them, and so he didn't want to be obligated to them like he was to his other benefactors. So was the charge. One of the commentators observes that in the ancient world, quote, the refusal of gifts and services was a refusal of friendship and dishonored the donor. Well, that was all the, the false apostles needed to try to drive a greater wedge between Paul and the Corinthians. Would you look at this? He thinks so little of you that he refuses the kind of personal gifts that might obligate him to you. And so Paul responds here just as he did in the previous chapter. Look at chapter 12, verse 13. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself didn't become a burden to you? The only distinction between the Corinthians and the other churches was that he didn't take their financial support. As Pastor John put it in his commentary, the only thing the Corinthians didn't get from him was a bill. And the only reason he did it this way was to put as much distance between himself and his behavior and that of the false apostles as he possibly could. These men were mercenaries. They were in ministry for the money, and they were taking advantage of the Corinthians. It says in chapter 11, verse 20, they were taking advantage of them, slapping them in the face. In the end, the Corinthians would have to decide this. Who's the genuine apostle who loves and cares for you? The ones who are attaching themselves to you like parasites and draining your livelihood? Or the one who will work night and day so as not to be a burden to you at all? Paul says, I'm doing this to serve you, not as part of some sinister plan to avoid being in your debt. And so he sarcastically breaks out at the end of verse 13, forgive me this wrong. Forgive me for serving you, for exalting you, for refusing to weigh you down and take advantage of you. At the end of verse 15, he says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? If I bear significant hardship by refusing to take your money so that I could be no burden to you, should you love me less for that? Well, because that's just ridiculous on its face, the accusations get even more elaborate. Skip down to verse 16. He says, but be that as it may, that is, whether or not I deserve to be loved less for loving you more, be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. See, it was incontestable that Paul hadn't taken the Corinthians' money himself. So now the false apostles spun this narrative. Well, sure, Paul refuses your financial support so he can convince you of his integrity. But, but all the while, he's got you laying aside money every Sunday for this collection that he's administering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Yeah, right. He's got his middlemen coming now to collect your money. You better believe a good portion of that money is going to go straight into his pocket. And this way, he can get up on his high horse about how he preached the gospel to you free of charge, but he gets your money anyway. 
You say, how can anybody come up with that kind of elaborate scheme? And the answer is, that's exactly what the false apostles would have done if they were in Paul's shoes. They would have loved to get their hands on that offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And so they ascribed to Paul, whose authority they desired to undermine, the wicked intentions of their own evil hearts. And John Calvin has such an insightful comment on this verse that I think is instructive for all of us. He says, It is customary for the wicked impudently to impute to the servants of God whatever they would themselves do if they had it in their power. I don't have time to elaborate on that, but note it for your own further reflection. It is customary for the wicked shamelessly to impute to the servants of God whatever they would themselves do if they had it in their power. That is so insightful. And so the charge is, Paul may pretend to minister among you free of charge, but he's pocketing the money that Titus and the others collected from you for the church in Jerusalem. And Paul says, yeah, right, that's me, crafty fellow that I am. I took you in by deceit, have I? And then verses 17 and 18, certainly I've not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I've sent you, have I? I urged Titus to go. I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take any advantage of you, did he? The Corinthians, they know Titus. He just visited them and had uh, his ministry among them was a wild success. He delivered Paul's severe letter and the majority of the church had responded so well. Paul says in chapter 7 how comforted and refreshed Titus was by his time with them and how his affection abounds because of their obedience that the Lord brought about in them when he was with them. And then in chapter 8, verse 17, Paul speaks about how eager Titus is to return to them and, and to deliver the letter of 2 Corinthians and to take up this collection to partner with them in the gospel, which they seem to be so eager to do. The Corinthians know Titus. They know who he is. They trust Titus. And Paul also mentions the brother with him. And in chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, we've sent along with Titus the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And then in verse 22 of another team member of chapter 8, we've sent with them our brother whom we've often tested and found diligent in many things. So here's the team. Titus, whom they know and love and trust. Another brother who they know but who Paul doesn't name because he's of the highest reputation of all the churches. And three, a third man who's been tested and proven diligent in his responsibilities. And Paul writes here in chapter 12 in the past tense, because by the time the Corinthians are reading this letter, the team will have already arrived. And he says to them, consider how Titus conducted himself among you in the past and consider how the three of them have conducted themselves among you since they got there on this present visit. And tell me, have they taken advantage of you in any way? The answer is, of course not. Of course not. And so then he says at the end of verse 18, didn't we conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Don't you realize, Corinthians, that I sent these men who are walking honestly and humbly before you? Don't you realize that if you receive them as genuine servants laboring for your benefit, that the character of the deputies reflects the character of the one who sent them? If you judge Titus to be innocent of this financial chicanery, how is it that I could be guilty of this elaborate embezzlement scheme? 
I sent Titus. The whole imagined sinister plot, all of these fanciful accusations are all just absurd on their face. So, if that's not true, why does Paul refuse the Corinthians' financial gifts? The answer is because of sacrificial love. Look back at verses 14 and 15 here. He says, here for this third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you. In other words, I'm going to continue my policy of not taking any of your money. Why, Paul? For, because I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And one commentator calls these verses one of the most movingly tender passages in the whole Bible. Here we see that vexed sternness and tender affection can dwell together in the same fatherly heart. He says, first, I do not seek what is yours. I seek you. And what an amazing snapshot of genuine love that that sentence is. I don't want your stuff. I want you. I'm not here because of what you can give me. I'm here for you. I'm not after your money. I want your heart. I want your soul. I want your whole heart to be devoted to Christ and his gospel and therefore to me, his messenger, just as my whole heart is opened wide to you. He said that to them earlier in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. He says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. Now, therefore, in a like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. Open your heart to me. One commentator said, it's the gift of their lives to Christ, not of their money to himself that he covets. The church father, John Chrysostom, paraphrased it this way. I seek greater things, souls instead of goods, salvation instead of gold. I want you. I want your whole-souled commitment to the gospel. I want your whole lives invested in the kingdom of God, devoted to the glory of Jesus. And so I'm not going to take your money. Because I don't want what is yours. I want you. And then he explains further. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He says, you're my spiritual children. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, he told them, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel that you were saved through the ministry of the gospel that I brought to you makes me in some sense your spiritual father and you, my dearly beloved spiritual children. In 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2, he pictures himself as that protective father of the bride, having betrothed the Corinthians to Christ and being jealous for her purity and, and devotion to her one husband. He is their father. He is their begetter of spiritual life. He is their betrother to Christ. And here he tells them that he will therefore be their provider. 
He says, my dear Corinthians, you must allow me a parent's privilege. It's not your duty to provide for me. It's my joyful duty to provide for you. And if you're a parent of adult children, or if you're an adult and you have parents, you understand this. I remember being absolutely bewildered as a child when my family would go out to a restaurant with my grandparents and my mom would fight with my grandparents over who was going to pay the bill. And not the way you'd assume. It wasn't, hey, you pay for it. Well, I'm not going to pay for it. You pay for it. No, it wasn't that way. They fought over who would get to pay. My mom would put the money in the little folder with the receipt and put it as far away from her aging parents as she could put it. And they'd get up and they'd either take the money out, give it back to her, or, and replace it with their own, or they'd find some way later to surreptitiously sneak money into the other one's purse <laughs> so they wouldn't notice. And I always remember thinking, hey, if, if they want to pay for it, I mean... <laughs> and my mom does that to me now, and, and like a good son, I try to be as accommodating of her generosity as I can be. <laughs> But I get it now, and I'm sure I'll get it even more when my kids are grown. There is honor for a parent to provide for their children. There is this sense of, you're my responsibility. And so there is this something of a dishonor for a parent to feel like they're a burden on their children. That's natural. Paul says to the Corinthians, I don't want our relationship to be that of a client and a patron. You're my children. You're my children. And what a rebuke that is to every mercenary motive for ministry in the Christian world. What a rebuke that is to the charlatans on TBN. What a, a rebuke that is for the people who want, to, want you to send them your seed money so that you can sow a seed of faith and, and they can get rich and they can send you, you know, some stupid holy water or miracle water or some nonsense. You're my children. I don't get rich off of you. I spend and am expended so that you can have every provision that you need. And that's exactly what he goes on to say. Verse 15, he says, As your father, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And there is in that sentence an entire theology of ministry. We don't have a ton of time, but let's go through it quickly. Ministry is sacrificial. I will spend and be expended. I will give of my time. I will give of my energy. I will give of my resources. I will lay down my very life for the sake of your salvation and maturity in Christ. In the language of Philippians 2.17, which Sheldon read for us earlier, he says, I will be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. If it means that I can strengthen your hands in the battle against sin, if I can weaken your affections for the things of this world, if I can see you increase in maturity in Christ and grow in the grace and knowledge of him, and if I can know, Paul says, that you'll come out from under this corrupting spell of these blood-sucking heretics, I'll spend money. I'll work nights making tents. I'll petition poor churches for help. Anything, anything for your souls, Corinthians. And you see in that another truth about ministry. Not only is it sacrificial, it's beneficial. 
Paul's willing to make any sacrifice for the souls, he says, of the Corinthians. He's not talking primarily here about saving them a few pennies. It's not just that his fatherly intuition wants to provide for his children financially. Primarily, he's talking about spiritual benefit, about soul benefit. Paul had other spiritual children from which he was glad to accept financial support. He said it was his right in the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9. So this isn't about picking up the check. It's about exposing the hypocrisy and the greed of these false apostles who have the Corinthians so spellbound and who, if they won't shake free of it, will drag their souls to the pit of hell alongside them. Faithful ministry isn't sacrificial for the sake of being sacrificial, as if the whole point was that somebody should endure loss. Faithful ministry is sacrificial for the sake of the benefit that accrues to the souls of those to whom we minister. We sacrifice not so that we can go without things, but so that others can go with those good things. Ministry is both sacrificial and beneficial. And just one other truth from this verse, it's also joyful. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. We saw this phrase back in verse 9 where Paul said that he would most gladly boast in his weaknesses. Again, this is the Greek word hedista, which comes from the same root word where we get the term hedonism from. This term speaks of sweetness. This term speaks of pleasure, of extreme elation. Paul isn't reluctant or hesitant to spend and be expended for the Corinthians. Paul's not just bearing down and begrudgingly plodding through his late nights and his thin wallet and his depleted strength. He says he is thrilled to do it. He is overjoyed, most gladly. And he says it back in Philippians 2.17, which I just read, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Why? Because Paul found his joy not in his own personal comforts, not in the money that he could siphon off of an unsuspecting congregation, not in the ease of a worldly acclaimed ministry. He found his joy in the magnification of the glory of Jesus Christ. And if Christ would be magnified in his labors, in his sufferings, in his being poured out like a drink offering, if spending and being spent meant that Christ would be magnified in the lives of the Corinthians, then he will spend and be spent most gladly. Because where Christ's glory is magnified, there is fullness of joy. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we minister most gladly. Yes, we sacrifice for the benefit of others, but we do it joyfully, not begrudgingly, because we know there is more of Jesus to be enjoyed on that path of sacrificial service. So Paul could not be justly accused of not loving the Corinthians. His sacrificial love for them was not undermined by his refusal to take money from them. Still less was it undermined by some sinister plot to deceive them out of their money with no strings attached. 
No, his sacrificial love was demonstrated by his fatherly affection to joyfully give of his substance and even give of his very life for the sake of his dear spiritual children, seeking nothing in return but their response of open-hearted love to him and faithfulness to Christ. And we've made applications along the way, friends, but we must examine ourselves here to discover whether we are marked by the signs, perhaps not of the true apostle, but certainly of a true minister of the gospel, a true servant of Christ. Can we say along with Paul to our brothers and sisters in Grace Life and at Grace Community Church, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Is our ministry to the body of Christ marked by joyful sacrifice for the benefit of our brethren? Can we look our fellow believers in the eye and say to them, I don't want what is yours. I want you. I'm not here to fulfill some weird desire that I have to feel needed or spiritually superior or whatever. I'm here because I love you. Because I want your heart wholly devoted to God. I want your soul to find its deepest delight and satisfaction in Jesus. That is the pattern for the ministry that each one of us has been called to. And may God grant that he give us the grace to be faithful to that ministry. And as always, if you're here without a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you don't, if you don't know what it is to experience vital union with Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sins and put your trust in him alone. This ministry to which we have been called, this idea of gladly spending and being expended for the souls of others is impossible apart from the grace that comes only from a saving union with Jesus Christ. And you lay hold of that union by faith alone. Christ lived the life that you were commanded to live by God but failed to live. And he died the death that you were required by God to die for your sins. He died that death in your place on the cross. And he was raised again three days later in manifest victory and triumph over death and over sin. So that now all that is required of you is to confess your guilt, to own your unworthiness, to turn away from your sin, to turn away even from what you think to be your good works, to put no trust in them, and to put all your hope for salvation, all your trust for righteousness in the courtroom of God, in the works of your Savior. Turn to Christ, put your trust in him, and be saved. And then go and lay your life down for your brothers and sisters, like he laid his life down for you most gladly. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the gospel that we have been loved this way, first by Christ and then by faithful servants that you have provided for us who are willing to spend their lives. We especially think of, of 50 years of faithfulness under Pastor John MacArthur, who has given his entire life to understanding what the scriptures say and what they mean for the believer in Jesus, we pray that we would not, we would not take such gifts lightly, that we would not uh, squander the example that we have been given, that we wouldn't 
make the grace of God in our lives prove to be vain, but as a result of the grace of God, that we would labor harder than all of them, just as Paul said he did, that we would most gladly spend and be expended for the benefit, for the spiritual benefit of our brothers and sisters, that we can genuinely say to people that we seek not theirs, but them. Make us such a, a genuinely loving, sacrificial people. Make us a people who are marked by the genuine signs of genuine service, not any longer the miracles that were extraordinary for, for your apostles to perform, but that our lives are in line with the standard set by Scripture and that we hold that standard with all perseverance in enduring all manner of conflict, no matter what. Make us fit to be testaments of your grace. Show yourself off in the sanctification of your people. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.